you for um, this morning. Thank you for being able to see um, old friends and family. And I just pray that your spirit would rest on Jessica now as she um, brings forth your word. May we all be uh, good auditors, true listeners and hearers uh, who will receive that word. So again, thank you for this morning. Thank you for Jessica being here to do this. And uh, bless us all. In your son's name, amen. Thank you. Can you grab me my notes? Nope, you were. You're doing other things for me. Thank you. I don't even really know how to start this with a thank you. All right, there we are. Um, good morning, everyone. Um, <laughs> I'm really happy to see that there are lots of kids here this morning because I'm going to need some help with my teaching today. But before we get started, I have a few discussion questions for the grown-ups to talk about while the kids come forward. Now, I know some people, like myself, who might be introverts, don't always love discussion questions, but I think it can be a good exercise to get us out of our comfort zone anyway. But believe me, if you're one of those people, I'm cringing with you. So grown-ups, here are your questions. Am I going to push the right button? Yes. All right. Our passage this morning is about pride and humility. What do you think it means for someone to be humble? What are one or two other words you might use to describe humility? Is there someone you know that you would describe as humble? What are some examples that show that person's humility? Read over our passage for today, Luke 18, 9 to 14. It's printed on the back of the bulletin. Does anything in particular stand out to you about this passage today? Anything that surprises you? Grown-ups, now you can turn to a few of your neighbors and talk about one or two or all three of these questions for about five minutes. Kids, while the grown-ups are talking, would you please come up and join me at the front? We have some important business to discuss. Which is very... I'm very happy to hear that. Um, so the kids and the big kid and I are ready, so we're going to act out this Bible story for you. So enjoy our little skit and pay attention for anything new that you might notice about the story as we act it out. Then Jesus told this story to some people who had great confidence in their own righteousness and scorned everyone else. Two men went to the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee. The other was a despised tax collector. You're going to go over to the other over. There you go. Thank you. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed this prayer. I thank you, God, that I'm not like other people, cheaters, sinners, adulterers. I'm certainly not like that tax collector. I fast twice a week, and I give you a tenth of my income. But the tax collector stood at a distance and dared not even lift his eyes to heaven as he prayed. Instead, he beat his chest in sorrow, saying, O oh God, be merciful to me, for I am a sinner. I tell you, this sinner, not the Pharisee, returned home justified before God. For those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Good job, everyone. Please take a bow. <laughs> and then the kids can come have a seat over here, or you can go sit with your parents if you'd rather. Now, grown-ups, did anybody have any insights that they really want to share from the discussion time? 
You don't have to. I just wanted to, to open it up. Yes. I think that's a really good insight that you can't divide people by extrovert and introvert and decide that introverts are more humble just because of their personality. Because humility and pride can be really sneaky things. Anybody else? No? Okay. Well, thank you so much for sharing. As you might be able to tell from the discussion questions, I think this passage is about pride and humility. Before we talk more about pride and humility in relationship to prayer, let's do a little background work on our passage and see what signposts are written in to help direct our understanding. I've got some questions, and I'd like the kids to try to call out an answer first, but grown-ups, you can chime in as well. First of all, who are the important characters in the story? Pharisee, tax collector. Jesus, obviously, is telling the story. Um, the next character we meet is the Pharisee. So who were the Pharisees? Thoughts? Yeah. This also doesn't have to be a call and response crowd today if that's not what we feel like. Um, <laughs> I just want to make it available. <laughs> um, <laughs> The Pharisees were a group of teachers of the law, religious leaders in Jerusalem. Along with a few other groups of Jewish leaders in the time of Jesus, the Pharisees had a major religious, cultural, and sometimes even political influence on Jerusalem and Israel. The Pharisees were particularly concerned with issues of purity, of personal righteousness. They focused on strict observance of the purity aspects of the Jewish laws and traditions. Um, as our friend Alec Arnold would say, noted biblical smarty pants N.T. Wright observes that faced with social, political, and cultural pollution at the level of national life as a whole, one natural reaction was to concentrate on personal cleanness, to cleanse and purify an area over which you did have control as a compensation for how impossible it was to clean or purify the outward and, vis and visible political world over which you had no control. In the face of centuries of invasion and exile, of one empire after another oppressing and ruling over the kingdom of Israel, culminating in the power of the Roman Empire during the time of Jesus, the Jewish people had little control over their circumstances. It seems that the Pharisees responded to this lack of control by seeking to control not only their own strict ritual religious purity, but also imposing this control on the people around them. Who else do we meet in this story? The tax collector. What do we know about tax collectors? Well, they were Jews who worked for the Roman government and collected various kinds of taxes from the people. They were hated by their fellow Jewish people in part because they were often dishonest, cheating people and taking more than they were supposed to, keeping it for themselves. Tax collectors might also represent giving in to the power of Rome, to the pollution of the conquering empire. They were one of several kinds of people who fit into the category of sinners, people that the Pharisees looked down on and were appalled that Jesus spent time and shared meals with. Taking a step back, this particular kind of story is called a parable. Jesus tells a lot of parables throughout the Gospels. A parable is a fictional story that a storyteller uses for teaching, a story with a moral or a lesson. Sometimes the writers of the Gospels tell us that Jesus was telling the parable to someone specific. In this case, Jesus is telling the story to people who think they are better, more righteous, more right with God than other people. 
More than likely, many of these people are Pharisees. Now that we've met our characters and thought about our text, what else do we know? Do you think this story has a good guy or a bad guy? If so, who do you think it might be? Well, another thing about Jesus' parables is that they often have a surprising or unexpected or upside-down twist. Sometimes this means that the good guy or bad guy is not who the original listeners or we the readers would expect, like the Good Samaritan, for example. That same dynamic is at play here. The righteous listeners of the parable would naturally be sympathetic to the Pharisee and not the tax collector, a sinner and therefore an outsider. But at the end of the story, the sinful tax collector goes away justified, made righteous, right with God, rather than the Pharisee who trusted his own righteousness. Surprise! But of course, not actually so much of a surprise for many of us who have heard this story before one or two or 40 times. Anyone who has spent very much time hearing about the teachings of Jesus knows that he is a little bit hard on the Pharisees, precisely for their self-righteousness. We know that the Pharisees think they are the good guys, but we're used to thinking them as the bad guys and identifying ourselves with the sinners, the ones who know we need God's grace. But hold on a second. The Pharisees weren't just mean thugs who bullied everybody else. They were genuinely trying to be faithful to God as they knew how. The things that the Pharisee does in the parable are good things to do, even humble things to do, fasting, giving, praying. The Pharisee genuinely thinks he's being faithful to God in his actions, but he's stuck in a humility loop where he's doing the good, humble things, but he's proud of them and looks down on others who don't do these things, and therefore the things are no longer humble or good. It's hard to see how this is relevant, though, at least for me, because I tend to imagine Pharisees like this guy, or maybe this guy. And this is the part of the sermon where I demonstrate exactly how hip and culturally relevant I'm not by referencing a Weird Al Yankovic 1996 single Amish Paradise. Uh, which is pretty silly, and just be thankful that I didn't geek out and actually play the video for you. Um, and it's really more of a parody about what people think Yamash people are like than what they're really like, but I think it, some of the lyrics illustrate the humility loop pretty well. Here's how they go. I'm not going to sing for you, but um, think you're really righteous? Think you're pure in heart? Well, I know I'm a million times as humble as thou art. I'm the pious guy the little omelets want to be like on my knees day and night scoring points for the afterlife. Sounds a little bit like our friend the Pharisee, huh? But do only old-fashioned looking people sound this way? Do we sometimes sound that way or feel that way? Do we ever find that we've done something good or strive to do something good, not because we love that thing, but because we're afraid that if we don't, people won't like us, or maybe God won't like us? Here I am teaching what I hope turns out to be a pretty okay sermon about humility and feeling a little proud of that. Feeling like maybe it will help make me a better Christian and more acceptable to God and to all of you, if I do all right. I think most of us are somewhere in between. We really do know that we are like the tax collector. We're sinners who need God's mercy, but we still get sucked in the Pharisee's trap of trusting in ourselves. Why is that? When we acted out the reading, what did you notice about the Pharisee's prayer? Where is he praying? Where was he looking? This is really easy, so somebody say it. In the mirror, thank you. Um, I lost my place, okay. 
He was looking in the mirror at himself and around at other people, looking down on them, looking especially down on the tax collector. In the Pharisee's mind, he could only be good, righteous, acceptable to God because he was better than everyone else, so he constantly had to keep his eyes on himself and on everyone else to make sure that he knew and that they knew that he was right, he was good, he was the best. It's sort of like he made an idol of himself and prayed to himself rather than to God. Of course, and for this I am indebted to noted philosophical smarty pants Jean-Luc Marion, idols are always mirrors in some sense. When we worship something that isn't God, we're creating God in our own image, believing that God looks like a bigger, fancier version of us. Kind of the opposite of truth that we are created in the image of God. The Pharisee thinks that the way to be righteous is to do all the right things and to be better than everyone else. So his false picture of God is a God who cares exactly about doing lots and lots of good things, making no mistakes, being the best. Here's another way to look at it. I will step over here and get my props. One more prop. Should have practiced this sooner. Um, take a look at this box. What do you notice about it? <laughs> Thank you. It is a present. Secret person hiding under the pew. Um, what do you think is inside the box? Nothing. Nothing. Yep, it's empty. Can you put anything in this box? Why not? <laughs> because it's sealed shut with its fancy wrapping. All right. What about... Uh, come on. What about this box? What's it like? Okay. Used to be used, yes. Um, it's empty too, but could you put something inside? Okay. Finally... How about this sparkly bag? What's in here? Can anyone see? Shiny candy. Okay, so what do these boxes mean? Well, the shiny bag full of candy represents the delicious caramely goodness of God's love, grace, mercy, blessings that he wants to pour into us. Of course, there are only so many pieces of candy in the bag, not even as many as it looks like, and God's love never runs out. But we can pretend that it's a never-ending bag of delicious, yet also perfectly candy for the sake of the story. Perfectly healthy candy, pardon me. The pretty, fancy box represents the Pharisee. It looks really nice. Everyone who sees this box thinks it's a great box. But by itself, it's really just an empty box. What happens? if we try to put some of the delicious candy of God's love in the Pharisee box. It's so wrapped up tight, nothing can get inside. That's like the Pharisee praying by himself in the mirror, just bouncing his own self back at himself. The shabby box represents the tax collector. Right now, it is actually kind of a terrible box. It's crinkled and torn. I thought about giving it to my baby, but I feel like she would have destroyed it too much for the illustration, so. Um, the tax collector, when he comes to the temple, is also pretty rough. He's ashamed because he has probably been pretty unjust and unkind to a lot of people. 
But what happens if we try to put some of these goodies in the tax collector box? Just need more surfaces. Yes. It's open. It can receive that goodness. Treasure in earthen vessels, if you will. Um, I will leave it at the back so everyone can take one as a reminder of the goodness that God has for you. Of course, if it were a perfect sermon illustration, the goodness of God would start to heal the brokenness of the box, fix the tears and the wrinkles, but unfortunately, that kind of illustration is beyond my limit. It's also, incidentally, beyond the limits of the story, which is part of what's so scandalous about it. Jesus doesn't tell us what happens to the box, I mean tax collector, after he asks God for mercy. We don't hear about whether he goes and sins no more right away and stops taking money unjustly. In this story, we don't know whether this tax collector is like Zacchaeus, who gives back lots of the money he cheated people out of. He probably would have kept on being a tax collector anyway, even if he became a fair tax collector, and the Pharisee would probably still keep looking down on him. All we know is that the tax collector asked, asked for mercy, and when he opened himself up to God like that in faith, he was given mercy. He went away justified in the eyes of God, and the Pharisee didn't. Luke tells us at the beginning who the story is for. It's not for the tax collectors, so it doesn't need to tell them about the nitty-gritty plan for their sanctification, which is always a process because which of us was forgiven by God and then went and never sinned again? But the story is for the Pharisees, for all the parts of each of our hearts that think if we're better than somebody else, we're good enough for God or for other people. The story is meant to make us a little uncomfortable because the last is first here. The person we least expect to walk away righteous does which would make me, and anyone else who is guilty of this, pause and think really hard before we explicitly or ever so subtly look down on or try to decide the goodness of any particular person or group of people. <coughs> because what does the tax collector teach us? The Pharisee's prayer is all about himself. He thanks God, but really he just lists off how awesome he thinks he is, especially in comparison to everybody else. What's the tax collector's prayer like? Will God be merciful to me, for I am a sinner? Pretty simple, pretty honest, pretty humble. The tax collector probably has a hard time being in the temple at all, but it seems like he has come to the end of himself. He is overwhelmed with knowing that he is a sinner, and he needs to come and meet with God, even if he's too ashamed to even look up. But in our sketch, instead of a mirror, the tax collector prays in front of a window. The window is blocked by that music stand, but again, it's a conceit. Pretend that it's looking up to the light. Um, he prays in front of a window in view of the truth about who God is, God's mercy. And being open to God like that, God's mercy and goodness is able to shine back through the window on him. The tax collector leaves different, and the Pharisee leaves just the same. He's justified in the eyes of the people around him, but in the end, that comes up empty. Does this mean we should never try to do anything good? Does being humble mean that we go around thinking we're the worst and it's never okay to be proud of ourselves for something? I don't think so. I think that's the vicious humility loop where our eyes are still on ourselves, trying to see if we're doing humility well enough. Maybe being humble is one part having an honest picture of who we are, the good and the bad, and one part just not thinking about ourselves so much. Like how we talk about how humbling it is to look out over the ocean, or a beautiful sky full of stars, or the Grand Canyon. 
It's humbling, not because we feel bad about ourselves when we look at those things, but because we're so swept up in their beauty and greatness that we just don't think about ourselves very much at all. And in that wonder, there's a lot of peace. That's kind of the idea of looking through that window and being humbled by the greatness, beauty, the love of God. Because he's good and he's for us, and we don't need to worry about piling up our good deeds or money or things or friends or skills or whatever to be enough in his eyes or other people's eyes. Because he has poured his mercy on us, there's freedom to try and fail and make fools of ourselves in front of other people, and we can pour out our hearts for love's sake. Honestly, I don't really know exactly how to let go of worrying about all of that yet, but I'm pretty sure we all need to. I think it's really interesting that the next story in Luke is about the parents bringing their children to Jesus to bless them. The disciples rebuke the parents. They look down on the children, and Jesus says, don't you dare stop them. The children are the least. They don't have anything to offer that would impress the disciples. But Jesus tells the disciples that they only receive the kingdom if they become like the children. So pretty soon we're going to come to the table, which is the best window of all. Jesus gave us the gift of sharing the bread and the cup together. And we look through the bread and the cup and we look through each other and we see his body and his blood, his covenant with us, and his life shines back into us. In Jesus, Paul tells us in Philippians, we see humility most clearly. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. Jesus became the lowest and then was lifted up, and so he raises us up. He takes our death and gives us his life which can look a lot like death when we want to cling to all the things we really like about ourselves and think make us look pretty and shiny. He invites us here at the table to let his light and his life in. So let's, com- let's prepare for communion with this prayer from the Anglican tradition. There will be some words in bold for us all to say together in a few slides. Um, so Rick, you can come on forward and, and we can get ready. Would you pray with me? Holy God, source of life and goodness, all creation rightly gives you praise. In the fullness of time, you sent your Son, Jesus Christ, to share our human nature, to live and die as one of us, to reconcile us to you, the God and Father of all. (coughs) He healed the sick and ate and drank with outcasts and sinners. He opened the eyes of the blind and proclaimed the good news of your kingdom to the poor and to those in need. In all things, he fulfilled your gracious will. On the night he freely gave himself to death, our Lord Jesus Christ took bread. And when he had given thanks to you, he broke it and gave it to his disciples and said, Take, eat. This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. After supper, he took the cup of wine. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them and said, Drink this, all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant.
which is shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Whenever you drink it, do this for the remembrance of me. Gracious God, his perfect sacrifice destroys the power of sin and death. By raising him to life, you give us life forevermore. Therefore, we proclaim our hope together. Dying, you destroyed our death. Rising. Lord Jesus, come in glory. Recalling his death, proclaiming his resurrection, and looking for his coming again in glory, we offer you, Father, this bread and this cup. Send your Holy Spirit upon us and upon these gifts, that all who eat and drink at this table may be one body and one holy people, a living sacrifice in Jesus Christ our Lord, through Christ, with Christ, and in Christ. And the unity of the Holy Spirit, all glory is yours, Almighty Father, now and forever. Amen. When you're ready, come on forward to the table, look to Jesus, and know that he looks back on you with so much love. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all, be with us all. Amen.